Buying tickets to sports and concerts can be complicated, but there's a better, simpler way to buy with SeatGeek. SeatGeek is the smartest, easiest way to get tickets to live events. With SeatGeek's seamless mobile experience, you can buy and sell tickets in just two taps. Just two taps. SeatGeek helps you find the best seats at the best prices, fully guaranteed. There's nothing quite like seeing your favorite team or musician in person. And SeatGeek gets you closer to the action for great value. Bill, tell me more about SeatGeek. You know what? SeatGeek is designed to make your ticket buying experience easier than ever. SeatGeek saves you time and money by searching multiple ticket sites to compare prices and find amazing deals. And to get you the most bang for your buck, SeatGeek grades every ticket based on value to help you immediately identify the best seats that fit your budget. Plus... Every purchase is fully guaranteed, so you can shop for tickets on SeatGeek with confidence. Make SeatGeek your go-to app for finding the best deals on every type of ticket, from sports and concerts to comedy and theater. All right, and best of all, podcast name play, nobody listeners. If you go today, you get $20 off your first SeatGeek purchase. All you have to do, download the app, SeatGeek, enter promo code SBNation today, as soon as you hear this. Uh, that's promo code SBNation, S-B-N-A-T-I-O-N, for $20 off your first SeatGeek purchase. Podcast Ain't Played Nobody, Godfrey. We have a very long-standing policy at Podcast Ain't Played Nobody in that when one of our coworkers writes a book about college fo- football alternate history, we have to have them on. And um, so it was just automatic that since Matt Brown uh, released a book called What If? A Closer Look at College Football's Great Questions, uh, this last weekend or so, we had to have him on. We had him on immediately. Matt Brown. Thanks for having me. I, I was unaware of that longstanding policy. but Oh, I'm, I thought that's why you wrote the book. I thought you were just oh, really excited I mean, about getting a second chance <laughs> at getting on the PAPN. Matt well, was, yeah. I think Matt was one of the first guests we ever had on the show. <laughs> so, yeah. Because, well, we uh, over in D.C. It was great. Yes, because, we, because it was a in-person live recording at the SB Nation offices in Washington, D.C., before we had the ability to to patch people in on our lo-fi software. So I, if Matt is not the first guest, he's definitely one of the very first I guests. think, honestly, Ramsey might have been the first, which is, yeah. you know, I, I sense an Ohio State bias right here, but... I'm fine I, with that. Yeah, if I remember correctly, I think that the real reason that I was called in to be the first guest when y'all were in D.C. was because, one, we needed to talk about Lovey Smith, which had just happened, right. and I was also the only member of the office that wasn't hung over that morning. Yeah, that sounded um, terrible. Yeah, I, get, I think, I think yeah. uh, that, that, that might have played a role, too. And, and, and quite frankly, I'm grateful because it means I get to come back and hopefully this time not talk about Lovey Smith. Or be hung, yeah, and, and I'm not hungover, so, I mean, I think we're off to a rollicking start. <laughs> I, I seem to recall going across the street to sh- uh, Shake Shack and downing quite a bit after uh, <laughs> the podcast. But you should anyway. do that anyway. Yeah, that's true. Um, anyway, so, Matt, you wrote a book, and it's a pretty awesome uh, pretty awesome approach and a very, very SBN-ish, and uh, so tell us a little bit about it. Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd be happy to. So, so this book takes a look at 13 events in college football history that uh, very, very conceivably could have gone a different direction. And it looks at how college football history might have changed had that event gone a slightly different way. Um, and it really it covers really the last hundred years of college football. So we have a couple of stories that are, are really at, at the very beginning of the sport. We, we take a look at... Uh, uh, what if Michigan had never rejoined the Big Ten since they got kind of kicked out, kind of left on their own volition for uh, disagreements about rules uh, around the turn of the century? And, and we look at uh, if Chicago had decided not to <clears throat> take apart a successful college football program and instead 
<coughs> excuse me, you know, build a working atomic reactor on the south sides of their stance. Uh, and you also look at some things that are a little bit more modern. You know, what might have happened if uh, Pitt had, uh, you know, not beaten West Virginia in 2007? What might have happened with some of these failed conference alignment plans from the early 1990s? And so I think there's a lot in here for a lot of different college football fans to learn something new. Okay, so my first question, Matt, before we get into the actual subject matter, why in the world did you decide to write a book in the middle of everything else that you're doing? You're you're a father of yo- a young child, just like I am. Mm-hmm. This was, I, I want to say when you announced this project, were we just coming off of a season or were we mid-season last year? We, we were coming off of a season, but I had been doing the research during this season. Okay, um, so, so explain to me how this all starts. So, I mean, I, I had kind of, you know, kicked around a couple of different ideas for a book. That, that, was, that was something that I had wanted to accomplish. And I think because I'd written probably 100 stupid stories about Big 12 expansion or realignment <laughs> for, for SB Nation, and I'm desperately trying to think of, like, what can I do to make this more interesting than the same 250 words that I write every single time and then go on, like, Salt Lake Radio to, to talk about as if there's some kind of, like, new, you know, sea change. And, and part of that then made me think about digging into some of the, the realignment changes in the early 1990s or the genesis of this conference. Um, and that kind of sent me down a rabbit hole to looking at the Metro Super Conference or the Airplane Conference or, you know, the, the proposed Eastern uh, you know, University Conference that Joe Paterno had been pushing for around that same time period. Uh, and that, you know, sort of sent me into researching a couple of these other questions. And, you know, I think I might like to do a second book, but I definitely won't do it on the same timetable that I did this one. Because basically what it meant was during football season, after I put my kid to bed, I would down an energy drink and have now picked up an addiction, which I unfortunately have not kicked yet, and then would would write another 2,000 words that night and did that virtually every night for five months until uh, I had this thing, at least a draft done and and can send it into edits. So I'm, I'm, I'm happy with the product. I think, I think these are fun stories, but if I tried to do this again, my wife would literally shoot me. So it does, I think more than just about any other sport, college football lends itself to what ifs, not only because only a few teams ever get to actually win the big title. And so, which, which leaves most fan bases thinking about that one missed opportunity and this one, you know, uh, you know, good thoughts, uh, but just the the general realignment periods, whether we're talking about, uh, you know, the airline conference, which th- thank you for writing this book, because it prevented me from having to write like an entire book about the airline conference and, and what might have <laughs> happened. So this, but I, I crossed that one right off the list. But, um, you know, that period of time where things looked like they might significantly shift, but didn't. And then, of course, the late 80s, early 90s, you mentioned the Metro Conference. Um what of all the things you found about the we'll we'll stick with the late eighties and early nineties first. So of all the, the the things you stumbled across, uh, the little tidbits that you maybe didn't know about beforehand. What what was the most interesting, uh, either something in your book or not in your book? Uh, just an interesting tidbit that could have happened that would have shifted things dramatically, just in terms of conference alignment at the moment. Yeah, I think the Metro Conference is, is a really interesting story. Yeah. And, and I was lucky that I think there hasn't been a really deep retrospective about that. So when I talked to Raycom and they, they sent me all of these briefing books that showed the financials of, of what they expected the conference to be and what the, the, you know, the individual um, 
you know, you, you really, I, I think people take for granted a little bit if you're around my age and you forget that, like, how terrible Louisville football was yeah. around this time, right? Like, this, this is absolutely a money-losing program. They have a terrible stadium situation. You know, they're, they're, they're losing to, to FCS, you know, caliber opponents during this time. And what's kind of weird about the Metro, beyond the fact that it's, you know, a very early adopter of making an alignment specifically for TV is you have really very different institutions involved here. So you, you have some programs that are at the elite of, of, of the sport at this point. You know, Florida State is, is, a, is a national championship caliber institution. They're in this group. Miami is competing for titles uh, in, in here. And you have some of these, you know, big East-ish schools that were independents that were still, you know, either producing top 25 caliber teams or were close and then you have that juxtaposed with, you know, Tulane is, was one of the you know, worst teams in FBS around this era. Rutgers and Temple, uh, some of these other teams were horrible. And you have East Carolina kind of shoehorned in, which doesn't really have a, an institutional fit with a lot of these schools. Um, and so how that would have worked long term, I, I think, is interesting. I don't think I really appreciated how close this was to happening. You know, the, the uh, you know, Ken Haynes at Raycom was telling me, like, we had everybody but, like, two teams on board. Florida State was ready to go. Like, they, they, they were internally signed up for this. It was Miami who had some concerns apparently about academics, um, which seems a little bit weird, you know, given, given that they end up aligning with most of these schools eventually. Uh, and Syracuse, who just wanted to study the proposal a little bit more. But, you know, a lot of teams that you think looking back on this now that maybe it would be surprising that they were so enthusiastic, we're, we're ready to sign on the dotted line. So this like this was not a, a West Virginia blogger message board fever dream kind of proposal. Like this was a real thing studied for several years that was close to happening. All right, now take us back. Explain this, the timeline in which this is proposed and then in the, the landscape and then when it dies so people understand where this fits between Big East, ACC, and yeah. even Big 12. So, so this this is before the Big East was a football conference. This was, you know, the these leagues, the, those those were these we had these schools participating on a on a basketball level, um, but not uh, these these were all football independents. And you have the Metro Conference, which is a also a basketball only league and one that's that is relatively successful. You know, Louisville and Memphis and Cincinnati; th- these were teams that were enjoying some success. <clears throat> They're all playing. Um, uh, you know FBS football, but they're they're also all independents. And the Metro at, at this point, this, this is in the late eighties, you know eighty eight, eighty nine, ninety. They're, they're realizing that that this model is no longer uh, sustainable. And if you just decided to create a football league with those particular schools, your your major programs like your, like Florida State are not going to uh, they're, they're not going to go along because they don't want to share revenue with teams like. Louisville or, or Memphis that are horrible and play in front of 20,000 people crowds and, and aren't really invested in that sport. Or you don't want to, uh, you, know, it's, you know, similar issues that we have with conferences. Now, you don't want to tie yourself down to have to play those schools. So the solution that um, or, you know, the Raycom had proposed was, okay, let's, let's blow this thing up. Let's make it a 16-team league. We're going to bring in all of these metro schools. So, you know, Cincinnati and Memphis and uh, Southern Miss, Virginia Tech, we're going to bring in a lot of these Eastern independents, your Syracuse, your Pitt, <clears throat> your West Virginia, uh, Rutgers, Temple, some of these institutions, <clears throat> pair them with Miami, <clears throat> sorry, and Florida State. I know, I, <clears throat> I, I, you know, a little congested here. And then you have this massive 16-team league that has a greater television presence than anybody, including the Big Ten, uh, split it up into, into divisions, which is something that people weren't talking about then, have a championship game, and 
bring in so much money that even if you have a relatively modest revenue sharing plan, something like 10%, everybody gets rich and uh, you know, everybody is able to, to benefit from something here. So there's, there's a lot of these revolutionary pl- uh, proposals that are, you know, now we take for granted because basically every conference uses those divisions, uh, expansion based on television markets, um, you know, in, internal revenue sharing that hadn't existed at that point. And this, this would have meant we don't have a big East football conference. Uh, it would have meant that the Conference USA and some of these other G5 leagues end up looking a little bit different. And maybe some of these programs that, that were struggling a little bit, like, like a Tulane or a Southern Miss or a Rutgers, have access to revenue that they need to institutionally build up their programs a little bit earlier. Yeah, I mean, this is, it's kind of crazy to think about where things were at that time. I mean, the original, I know the original plan included Penn State, and then eventually they were no. kind of the first one to kind of back out, right? Yeah, the, 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 yeah the, the first models included Penn State, and really, I think before the, these conversations got really serious, Penn State joined the Big Ten, um, and, and you know, that was a move that on a lot of levels really wasn't done about athletics, like athletic directors weren't really a part of those conversations, but that also really set off the, the alarm bells for everybody else that we right. need to start having these conversations about it, getting bigger. It's just, it's crazy to think about. I mean, number one, if, if Penn State isn't available, Big Ten maybe doesn't expand or does yeah. and adds a, who's left at that point? A Nebraska, I guess. Or yeah, I mean, Nebraska, yeah. Yeah. might have sped up the Nebraska situation earlier. Yeah, I mean, Nebraska had been trying to get in the Big Ten. I didn't realize this either. Yeah. Basically, since the league was formed, <laughs> like right. they're, they're sending in applications in 1915, 1920, and the Big Ten you know, tells them no every single time. This would have been like, and then when, and then when Chicago leaves, uh, they stink, and therefore it's between yeah. Pitt and Michigan State. Yeah, that, that's, and that's, that's a weird story too with Michigan doing everything that they can to keep to keep Michigan State out. That's that's also something that's uh, discussed in this book. If that's a thing that you're all uh, interested in. Yeah, well, to finish up the Metro part, though, I mean, it is, you know, think about it, even if Penn State does go to the Big Ten anyway, you don't have the Big 12 yet. You don't have the ACC expanding to get Florida State yet. Um, and then you've got, so all, most of these team conferences are still between, what, eight and 11 teams, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you lay down the hammer with, uh, you know, a North Division, well, a 16-team conference that has, in the North Division, you had, uh, you know, at the end of the '80s, Boston College had been a contender a co- one, at least once that decade. Syracuse almost won the national title in like '87. Yeah. West Virginia almost won the national title in '88. Pitt almost won the national title like four different years at the beginning of the decade. And so that's a powerful, seemingly powerful conference. Plus, Virginia Tech is is starting to build a little bit. Yeah, and they they, the they, oh. they hire Frank Beamer, I think, right. one or two years after this forms, and the first year oh, of the okay. conference. That's the year that like East Carolina went like eleven and two. Like right, right, right. right. That's yeah. right. Yeah. I, I actually broke this down by S and P plus and like, nice. yeah, the first year it's, it's not that great, but by like year two or three, you've got, you know, seven or eight teams in the top and top 50, you got South Carolina in that league too, which improves yeah. a little bit. Um, it gets a little bit weird given how the Metro proposed that they would break up divisions. Um, and that they, they even had a pod system, which, you know, I know that a lot of us here are, are, are in favor of, which might mean that you, that you might get like uh, a Syracuse Pitt Metro Championship game, which might a little bit might have been a little bit strange. They weren't really ge- geographically centered, um, but but the depth at at the top and at the middle is definitely there. At the bottom, horrific. Like there's there's going to be some seven two to nothing games uh, right. in, in these first couple of years. But it would really be a pretty good league if you're if you're younger than thirty you ish, know, maybe late twenties. The thing to keep in mind here at the time is Virginia Tech abysmal non-existent 
Pittsburgh, sort of a perennial national power. Yeah. It's a little weird to understand the commodities here. So so when you think of them in, in today's terminology, like Pitt was a bigger – I think Pitt was a bigger negotiating – had had more negotiating ability than, than we could give them credit for at any yeah. point in the last right. 20 years. Yeah. yeah. No. The, lots of, lots of na- potential national powers or recent national powers in the north. But just thinking about like – how other conference would they would have freaked out about this? That's the most interesting part to me, um, especially if the Big Ten has maybe tried to go after Nebraska. Who the hell does like? What, there's almost no draw to a Big Twelve conference at that point. Uh, without, I mean, you still have Oklahoma, Texas, I guess, but you don't have Nebraska in the mix. Uh, you've got a seventeen Big Eight uh, that I don't know added. Who's left? Colorado State. I have no idea. Yeah. Um, it would have really honestly, it would have had been a westward expansion, and I think maybe they would go after. I, you know, I can't remember what the, what the state of Utah looked like. The, not the state of Utah, but the state of the University BYU. of Utah. I mean, BYU may have become a factor quicker uh, yeah. in these conversations. Yeah, I, I mean, at, at this point, we're talking. This is when BYU is only a couple years after a national title. Yeah, and, you know, and so all of those things that you wrote last year, Matt, they don't they don't exist in this pocket universe. Right. That's why you wrote the book. Exactly, and, and you also end up with like I think a much more fun G five league because you know around this time in the mid nineties when you have a couple other programs entering, and if you don't have uh, you know a Tulane or Southern Miss floating around, that changes what Conference USA looks like. So I mean, I think. The actual like thing I, I've written out in the book is you might end up with the league with like UAB, Central Florida, South Florida, Arkansas State, and then like the you know Tech Monroe and Lafayette as like some kind of consolidated you know Sun Belt Conference USA kind of thing, and you know maybe throw it in Middle Tennessee. That's not a bad league either. You know that that, that might help solve some of the, the the questions that we're talking about now about trying to redraw the boundaries for some of these leagues. It would have it would have absolutely hurt the Southwest or the Big Eight or whatever we look at the look for those. I'm not really sure what the SEC does because at this point they have a huge urgency to get to 12. Yeah, and with a lot of these teams off the board and really, I mean, they, they, they try to go to Texas and the state legislature basically makes that impossible. Right. There's there's really there's really not a whole. I mean, like do you you call yeah. Georgia Tech back? Like do you? <laughs> Houston was another team that they that they had talked about too, but they weren't. They were kind of up and down and, and certainly not really a big prize uh, at that point. So, and at that point in time, uh, A&M was uh, like on and off and on probation. Houston mm-hmm. was getting decked by NCAA sanctions. Yeah. And so if, if South Carolina is not available and those schools aren't available, I guess, I mean, Arkansas still is in this case because Southwest Conference is probably going to fall apart. But who the yeah, hell Arkansas still happen? probably has the yeah. natural inclination to go over. Um, but West Virginia is unavailable. Missouri stinks. Uh, Virginia Tech hasn't been good yet, or not really. They had a couple good years in the '80s, so maybe that gets a look. But I don't even know. I think yeah, the dynamic of they're, they're tied up in the metro. Know, SEC expansion changes. Oh, right. SEC expansion has affected the most in, the, in terms of their methodology because the first expansion that adds Arkansas and South Carolina is just a failed attempt to get Florida State. Right? Yep. Do they go after Clemson? Oh yeah. That that was actually what I what I had ended up writing is that the, yeah. the AC, because you know the ACC without Florida State is barely a power conference at this point you know it's it's uh, you know this is this around this time you're hoping to make the Gator Bowl um, and that makes 
I, I think other teams in that league a, a little bit more vulnerable or the Southwest survives for a couple more years and, and then breaks up. Like, you know, from talking to some TV people from researching this, like nobody thought that the Metro would have survived through like now. So maybe an SEC in 2017 still looks kind of similar to what it what it does at this point, um, given some of the, the weird institutional fits. And I, I think you might have some of the same conflicts that the uh, the Big East eventually had. But the, the SEC in 1999 would certainly look a lot different. That is funny. Uh, so they get Clemson and Arkansas, they actually end up better. Uh, <laughs> and then maybe, I guess technically, if, if the Metro has set the – the bar at 16, the SEC could look into just completely de- decapitating the ACC at that point and going after Georgia Tech, I guess, who, you know, was good in, in 90. Um, really good. Yeah. yeah. And so, yeah, weird. And, weird and, and a, a school where there was some institutional momentum to, to look at bringing them back because there were a lot of administrators in the conference that were like, you know, we had a lot better academic reputation when we had Tech and Tulane. And yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah, like there, I, I found newspapers on record of people saying we, we take, you know, we take we take Tulane's call, even though that their athletic department is an absolute tire fire and there's gambling <laughs> problems and everything just because we want another AAU school. It's not. And just of course, Maryland. Kids. Yeah. Well, yeah, of course, they go after Maryland. Uh, all right. Other than realignment porn, which and there's nothing wrong. With <laughs> oh, that. my God. We, we, we all enjoy that. Um <laughs> Tell us, uh, and, and I'm always, I'm very dubious because Matt's the first person that we've had on with a book since I've discovered, I'll, you'll listen to like NPR or some other interview show where someone's written a book and then they come on the show and by the time they're done, they've talked so much about the book that you're like, well, I think I've read that. Like I got the gist of it. So I, I kind of want to leave people with cliffhangers and yeah. so don't, let's not necessarily give away the shop because Matt wants to sell the book. So g- give me your best non-realignment uh, fantasy scenario pitch give me something that's completely left field if if you are a listener although i don't know why you would be of this show and you're burnt out on realignment okay that that's fine there's only two realignment chapters in the book you could skip those I there you go yeah so there, there's two that i think are are really interesting they're really fun to research and they're interesting for two totally different reasons if you are somebody who's more interested in some of the administrative behind the scenes stuff in college football. I think there's a really fascinating story about the University of Pennsylvania in the early 50s that, along with Notre Dame, was the, the first school to negotiate their own specific television deal. You know, they, they, they were going to be on TV all over the East Coast. They were one of the pioneers of, of television technology to begin with, and their university president uh, was somebody that very badly wanted to be president um, and figured that getting Penn football on TV all the time and, and like, a good Penn football team on TV all the time, uh, would benefit his own presidential aspirations. And everyone else in the NCAA completely freaked out. And that led to this idea that television would be centrally controlled. Uh, And that went all the way up until um, the Oklahoma Supreme Court case in the 80s that deregulated everything. So there's an entire chapter that looks like what would have happened if they had let Penn keep their TV deal and then let everybody else from the very beginning negotiate their own television contracts because that not only i mean there's i guess there's a realignment component to that but it completely changes who's going to be good um and and the the entire i I think assumptions that we make about you know what are the things that that helps a college football program become a a good program is it their geography is it their administrative buy-in and we kind of you know move away from the northeast which really became less of a college football thing 
uh, relatively early and an idea where Penn is like a Notre Dame and like a national television program uh, like that. Then you have like Penn being like a quasi Michigan kind of program. And, th- and that I think is interesting from a, you know, from a lot of the, 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 the back end kind of situation. The other story that I write about here that I've talked about that I think is really fascinating talks about Lavelle Edwards, you know, the you know, BYU coach, you know, drags this program that was, I mean, that really sucked before he got there, you know, trying to run the single wing after everyone else in the country had had uh, realized that that's a little bit prehistoric, comes in and builds this enormously influential passing offense that, you know, has a bunch of ties with the air raid and with the NFL. Before BYU wins a national title in the late 70s, Miami tries to hire him. Um, and uh, this was at the time when Miami was debating shutting down their entire college football program. So the, 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 there's a whole chapter that details that courtship a little bit, what was going on with Miami at that point, because, you know, this is a, that's a school that has a huge uh, alumni base in the Northeast where college football isn't as, uh, as big of a deal. You have a huge international population, which are, you know, the guys that are less likely to become, you know, boosters than bag men. Um, you know, if Edwards takes this job and Miami doesn't turn around in a couple of years, does the program shut down before Schnellenberger gets there? Uh, does Miami run by a uh, conservative, you know, laid-back Mormon guy from Utah? I assume that that means that we don't have the camo fatigues, extremely flamboyant, you know, the eighties, <laughs> right? Which, uh, right, which, which is one of the most, I think, influential and interesting football, uh, you know, eras that we've ever had. And I, I, I obviously BYU doesn't win a national title. I think in the mid eighties, and, and and that whole tree kind of shrivels up. I think that that makes college football worse off. Um, but, you know, that, that whole timeline is explored a little bit. And, and that's something that I think a lot, of, a lot of fans don't realize. There were a lot of really pretty big names that were Miami was at least shooting for. I, you know, I think Jackie Sherrill was one of them. There's a couple other ones before they end up with Lou Saban and eventually Schnellenberger. I'm just well, I'm, I'm mortified by the concept of Lavelle Edwards, Miami. Um, yeah, it's, it's not fun. And I, 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 think, well, I, I think both the, of those teams. The effect, yeah, I was going to say, the effect on both teams is dramatic in, the, in that case. Um, you know, we always play the what-if game with Spurrier and LSU, but that one seems to, that one alters the course of college culture, college football culture, more than anything I could think of. Is that why you picked it? Yeah, that, 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 that was it. I mean, there, there was a couple other teams that, that took a run in Edwards. You know, I think a lot of fans know about the Detroit Lions uh, in the mid-'80s. I'm less interested in that because it's the NFL. But, like, Minnesota took a run. Uh, there, were, there were newspaper reports Texas? about Stanford and Missouri. But, but in terms of cultural influence and impact, yeah, the idea of, of you know, what we think of Miami to be, even if that's more of a memory than what it actually is now, potentially not existing, like, I think that's really interesting. Yeah, I think I think Missouri went after him in '78 ish yep. when they yeah. hired Warren Powers. But I thought I think I heard Texas at one point too uh, interviewed him at least, but didn't it didn't you know whatever. Yeah, um, it's possible. I mean, it, it, it would make sense. He was a good coach, and he was barely making any money. You would be dumb not to try and get him. So um, if we're not giving away too much from the book, uh, should we go ahead and pivot to questions? Is it too early for that? I, I don't you know. I don't want to. Uh, Matt, what do you think? Is there anything else you want to sell? This is your platform, sir. Sure. You know, so the the last thing that I'll mention here is that I I would say the bulk of these chapters are about more either administrative coaching or like institutional buy in things, but there are some actual honest to God football stories. And if you, uh, I I know there are like our West Virginia blog, uh, Smokey Musket, likes to joke that the 2007 season was canceled because of the war. 
Um, but uh, the, the, the look at what would have happened if West Virginia had actually beaten Pitt and how that would change the trajectories of Terrell Pryor, Ohio State, Rutgers, Michigan, LSU, like a ton of different other programs besides what was maybe the most fun and interesting season we've had in a long time. Uh, I, I, I think that's worth the read, too. Like, you know, like it, each one of these chapters could probably be their own book. I hope that, uh, you know, looking at this as a fan, you get a chance to, to dig into some stories that you might not have known about from a school or a conference from across the country. Because there's, there's a bunch of really cool, like, little tidbits that you miss because you're so, you know, pigeonholed on, on your own team. Like, I knew a bunch of this stuff about Michigan and Notre Dame and the Big Ten, but, like, did I know about the breakup of the of the PCC and, like, these gigantic cheating scandals or some of the stuff about Nebraska with, with you know, pre-Devaney? Like, I had no idea. Um, I, I hope that's interesting to everybody else, too. That's actually pretty enticing, I will say, because we do talk a lot about 2007, Pitt, West Virginia. It's a dead rivalry now. It had weird things occur. You have Rich Rod ending up at Michigan, but the, the tease there with Terrell Pryor, that's, that's some sizzle and a hook there. I like that. Um, yeah, yeah, man. He could have won a Heisman Trophy at West Virginia, and that, I mean, that, that's, that, that could have happened. He's, 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 not, he's, he's not from very far away from West Virginia. That offense with him and Rich Rod it would, and, and with like Noel Devine in the backfield would have been terrifying. Interesting. Bill? Yeah. Let's start questions. Okay. Okay, first one from Ryan Dewey. T underscore Ryan Dewey. Bill, it's one of those weeks where I feel really benevolent. I want to give out the the full, I wouldn't say phonetic, Twitteretic pronunciation of people's usernames. Coach O at Media Days had me thinking about less. Does he ever coach again? Is it an off-season or never thing? I don't know what that last part means, Ryan. Um... (sighs) I'm going to lean towards no, um, based off of the conversations I had with people last year in the coaching cycle. Les was very aggressive in pursuing a variety of jobs, um, none of which he was particularly uh, fit for. And, and so that begs the question, what potential job that we might anticipate opening in the 2017-18 cycle would he be fit for? And I have a tough time thinking of anything. Um Lawsuit aside with Houston Nutt and Ole Miss, this is the same problem that he ran into and in that a once you know, prestigious SEC coach sort of runs afoul of father time. Um, I think some of Les's practices and some of his philosophies and personnel and everything else, kind of, it, it was hard for him to be unseated, unsat, unseated in Baton Rouge, but once he was the game had sort of passed him by. So unless you guys can object, I can't think of a job that opens that we think that we know about in seventeen eighteen that he would probably step in and do great at. Yeah. I mean, Minnesota felt kind of miles ish, but they obviously had something in mind from the start when they got rid of clays. Um, but this time around, I mean, I, you know, pure morbid, uh, the pure morbid joy that would come from, you know, Ole Miss hiring him would be just amazing. <laughs> but I, yeah, that's I'm going to guess happen. that probably doesn't happen. No. Uh, but what, are we also, what else are the main ones we're talking about here? Notre Dame, no. UCLA, probably not. Um, A&M, I guess, probably no. not. Texas Tech, probably not. Uh, Arizona, probably not. So um, The only thing that I can think of, and I can't imagine why he would accept this, would be somebody like a – like a Mac team deciding like, you know, we're going to buck the trend and, and bring in somebody who we know is going to be able to sell some tickets or, or, or build up interest, you know, like, a, a like a, yeah, like, like, like a Solich or was it like Larry Coker or UTSA kind of situation. But right. I, I, 
I, I think that would surprise me a little bit if he, if you know he decided no you know I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna end everything here by Eastern Michigan like I don't well and that's that's the problem that plagues these guys is that once you get a taste for competing at the at the highest level you tend to not want to go backwards Solich is such a rare rare thing the fact that he's had six success the fact that he's made a Mac team consistent the fact that he seems okay with it. Um, I mean, is there a Youngstown State for Les Miles? I don't know. Um, but but as far as naming off, you know, just whatever. This is me trying to do math. Bill, help me. Like, if there's if there's a set, if X is a set of jobs that are open at the Power Five level, however they may many may they be this year seven, fifteen, whatever. I don't know if he's the guy that makes the top three list for any of them. Right. And I guess the question more is why, and it's. You know, I was told he didn't necessarily put together strong pitches on recruiting particular areas based on the individual jobs that his staff seemed ambitious and not necessarily guaranteed. So maybe, I mean, and this is just, this is a big maybe, but maybe he spends a, a year off in the cycle and and I think, is he going to do some TV work? I don't know. I can't remember. Um, let's say he does some TV work and, you know, he gets better at pitching himself so is it out of the realm of possibility absolutely not do I think it's going to happen with a major team that we think rationally can contend for national titles I do not I do not think that no um well I mean and if this is just one big collusion attempt to get him on television I'm fine with that (laughs) let's get less on tv as fast as possible um but I, I mean yeah, no, especially this year, especially the top jobs. And the further you, the further out you go, unless he goes on a television and takes kind of the John Makovic thing where he's good on television and seems real smart, uh, which uh, even, even though I think he is a very smart coach, he, you know, he's more, he comes across as folksy enough to where even the smart things are, you know, people are going to be like, ha ha, last miles. But, um, you know, maybe that's a route for him, but I doubt it. I think the further out you go, the, the less likely it becomes. Uh I, just a quick shout out to the time that I did applaud him at SEC Media Days and earned several, several uh, discerning, several angry tweets from people that I can't believe they let these people in who would clap for a coach. I guess they thought I was a fan. I don't know. But I'll always have that moment because as I clapped, I'm about four rows back in the main room. He sees me and gives me a fantastic Les Miles thumbs up. <laughs> because I think in that moment Les got it and I got it and we shared it and every other old a-hole didn't. It was uh, I'll always they were just cherish. Jealous. It. That's why they were mad. I guess what I'm saying. Um, all right. Uh, question. Actually, I tell you what. Let's throw it to the author for this, and then Bill will probably be able to weigh in. Juco All American at Juco RCR asks if you could change or introduce any one rule to increase parity in college football. Well, would do it. Matt? Yeah, that's an interesting question because I feel like parity has generally been more of an exception rather than the rule throughout right. college football history. I, yeah, like there, there's been a couple of blips. There, there's there's two things I think could do it. And I'm not saying that these are necessarily like good rules. But one thing that would absolutely increase parity is if you lowered scholarship limits. If uh, if you said that teams could only sign 70 players uh, instead of instead of 85 or that you allow G5 schools to, to sign more players that, than power programs, huh. then uh, I, I think that that would, would level, level the playing field a little bit. Like that, that was one of the, the – I think the, the big changes in parity was when we had 
a national limit. And you couldn't have like a Nebraska or an Oklahoma bring in 115 guys on their team and, and face off against you know a team that could only afford half of that many. That led to a slightly more equitable distribution of talent. Um, the other thing that I could possibly think of, and, and, and maybe some people would think that this would actually work in, in another direction, would be to, to really liberalize the transfer markets. Like, you know, like after World War II, when, um, <laughs> yeah, when, when it was basically college football free agency, um, and, and you, that's when you, you saw a couple of programs that had traditionally not been that great suddenly, you know, feel pretty strong teams. Like Maryland did this. I, there, I think Santa Clara was, you know, suddenly went to like from a, 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 a nationally competitive program. There were a couple other ones. If you could just bring in 30 people all at once. And if you could have a guy that was highly regarded and was you know, buried on the depth chart at a Michigan or Ohio State, Alabama, and then could immediately slot in at UTSA or Central Michigan, um, that might help even out that, that distribution of, of, of high-end guys. Like Not to say either of those are necessarily desirable, but I think those would help. Yeah, the transfer thing, I think, you know, if you got rid of the the one-year uh, sitting requirement. I do think that would – we've already seen with the grad transfer rule. Like, it, it, you know, you can end up with quite a few, and that would end up with even more, I think, if you don't have to fear, you know, sitting out even longer, especially if you're transferring because you're not playing somewhere. But um, that, that really would have plenty of other repercussions that I'm not completely sure would be worth it, even if it does increase parity. I mean, obviously, you know, it goes without saying my first response is promotion and relegation, but, um, (laughs) like that, that's just a default. That's, that's my brand. But otherwise, I don't know. I mean, I don't think trying to combine what would do it with what could actually come to pass. I, I don't see them. Well, a, I don't see them lowering the scholarship limit, but also I don't want them to, because one of my big, you know, Tenants is the more scholarships, the better for uh, being available to play college football and get an education playing college football. Um, so I don't necessarily like that unless we were to also like increase the scholarship limit to 70 for FCS or something to balance it out. Yeah. But um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I think the transfers, the grad transfer was a good one. And unless we make that even more liberal, I guess really if you wanted to add signing, if you, you wanted to get rid of signing day or add another early signing window where the, the teams that are good at identifying talent more quickly, uh, they get those commitments and then they're able to sign them uh, before, you know, Ohio State or, or whoever comes knocking late in the process. Uh, technically, that could do a little bit, too. But, um, you know, again, maybe that would have plenty of repercussions, too. I have one. Okay. What if we turn the faucet off and every athletic department has the exact same allowable operating budget? Well, I mean, hell yes. <laughs> <laughs> so right now, if you whatever you can raise, that's great. If you want to take donations for 25 to $30 million a year or $100 million a year in donations, that's fantastic. But your football program and your basketball program are set at a max allowable operating budget. In addition, coaching salaries are capped. Yeah. So let's find out about if the spirit, I mean, you know, it's, it's more than a game. Uh, everyone's going pro in something other than sports. Um, let's find out if it just means more. <laughs> let's, take, uh, let's take the billion dollars out of it. Let's, uh, you know what, if whatever ESPN pays the SEC, they have to pay 
the Pac-12, the Mac, and CUSA. See, I thought about going about it that way. As I, I, I'm, this is stream of consciousness. The problem with that is, I don't necessarily think it'll affect bottom lines of individual universities because then you could just say, well, "All right, well, let's say ESPN has to pay twenty million dollars and only twenty million dollars for the rights to every conference. So Sun Belt and SEC, they get the same amount of money. Private donations and fundraising would still alter the the, the landscape, right? Because you're gonna have more people who are gonna write a check to Alabama than they are right. to to uh, Troy. Okay, so doesn't matter. You have exactly $50 million. And if you can get to $50 million, great. If not, keep keep raising them funds. But that's it. You don't get $135 million operating budget. Yeah, it, it's funny you mentioned that because I, I was actually about to suggest a luxury tax, but that would be even more punitive. Uh, and, and I like a luxury tax too, except a luxury tax would then go right around and go straight into the coffers of the, uh, of the lesser schools. Yeah, that's you know that that's that's every every athletic department dollar you spend over seventy five million has yeah. to go to a general G five fund to, yeah. to, to, to do But that's that. I I I was tossing around something like that for the whole uh, commission thing a couple months ago, um, or a general kind of a revenue sharing idea. I couldn't end up, I didn't end up coming up with anything that I just liked enough to pursue it. But yeah, there are a million ideas that you could uh, go with there to make sure that. Yeah, again, if the idea is that you have the most possible number of players playing college football for an education, sure, because yeah. that's what we want, right? Right. Yeah, that's what I want. Um, then, yeah, well, make that's what sure the SEC you... wants. They just said that. Sure. Yeah, that's definitely what the SEC wants. <laughs> right. Um, that's what they told me on the TV last week. But yeah, I mean, it, that's the general premise, and that's how you do it. It doesn't have to be a, a hard cap, although it sounds it would certainly be fun to watch that happen. Uh, but no, mm. I mean, if, if some of the idea, uh, if the money from the top uh, gets filtered down to some uh, of the schools at the, at the bottom, then that's what you end up with. And the teams at the top still end up with more money. Uh, they just don't have quite as much more money. And uh, the other teams have a little bit more to play with. That's, yeah, that's why I'm arguing against taking, if you, if you regulate particular streams, that'll always be circumvented. If you tell everyone it does not matter if so-and-so dies and leaves $50 million to Florida then it can go into the general scholarship fund. Certainly we, as as noble patrons of this fine uh, enterprise of student-athletes playing a sport while they receive their exemplary education, uh, we don't care if the university benefits from it, you know, if it goes to the aerospace department or physics or what have you. But the athletic budget gets $50 million, and that's more than enough to run a program to run football and basketball and women's track and everything else. Yeah, I do enjoy the, about the budget of uh, James Madison, $50 million. That's, that's about what last I checked. James yeah. Madison can keep the lights on. Yep. Yep. That's, that's the rumor. I do enjoy the thought of basically guilt tripping the schools. Oh, well, if this is what you say you want, then let's make that happen. And you know, that's, you know, and, and then they get to that. I'll say, well, no, that's not what we really want. Well, you know, it's the spirit of amateurism, and it's about improving right. the lives of young men. So why not? Uh, why not focus on that and then divert all those funds? I'm not saying don't sign a billion dollar deal with SEC or with ESPN and the SEC. Sign a billion dollars and then take all that, take those billions with a B, and put that into the school with an S. <laughs> yeah. No. It, it, nobody. Nobody. No. Is, is that not going to happen? <laughs> no. I. I I, I, I'm just curious if I hear people screaming right now that are listening to this, huh? Guess not. Guess it's, not. 
Yeah, it, no, it's funny. This this ties into something I feel like I've written for Land Grant a, a bunch of different times. It, it's like as a fan, it's why I don't have a whole lot of patience for the uh, the, the the kind of um, you know who's who's bigger contest on Twitter about athletic budgets or anything, or, or why as a fan I should be particularly invested. In, you know, I root for Ohio State. I, I don't really care if Ohio State's athletic budget is 164 million or 180 million if they're getting 42 or 50 million dollars from from Fox because it doesn't appreciably change my experience as a fan or really my experience as as somebody who's like invested in the academic institution very much. I mean like a lot of these most of these teams aren't adding sports. You know, it's right. not like the people are, are taking their Rutgers check and starting hockey teams or starting lacrosse teams which which would which would be one thing. I'm, I'm for some of these teams that are making like seventy five million dollars. I don't really know if things would change that much. We, it, it would, you would change your accounting practices a little bit, and you'd realize that maybe uh, how we're counting our spending of a scholarship is since we're writing that check to ourselves is maybe a little bit different in real life than we've been presenting it on this balance sheet. Uh, it may be less of a big deal than we actually think. Just a thought. Thought. I Just dig a it. Thought. Uh, Matt, you got you got a question when you tweeted this morning. Uh, I did. Um, uh, our our friend here, Salt Creek and Stadium, would like to know why do we hate Nebraska? Bill, do we hate Nebraska? I mean, I'm I'm a Missouri fan, so I'm legally required to say yes to this. Um, Kicked it. I, you know, I well at the moment I can just say it's because I you know said something not perfect about Tanner Lee. Uh, and it and it occupied me on Twitter for a good week and a half. But uh, I hate nobody. I that's that's I I'm, I hate nobody. <laughs> I love everybody. Uh, I don't know what this person's talking about. Oh, well, we was driving across the South um, this week and last week and the week before last, uh, working on some stuff. And I heard a stupid radio person say some stupid things. And one of it was about Nebraska, um, specifically that the world has passed Nebraska by and they'll never be good again. Um, and it it, it it prompted me to seek some clarity on our podcast. Um, and by the way, I didn't set this question up because they asked Matt. Uh, I don't think that – I don't hate Nebraska. I think Nebraska, when you go back and watch those – the Osborne stuff, it's cool. It, it's awesome. It's just another another flavor in college football, and, and I have no issue with them. Um, and they hate Texas and Oklahoma and – Aspired to go to the Big Ten, and hey, I, you know, we love that drama. I think where the criticism on this show that comes towards Nebraska is they have become a little myopic, and they have continued to push forth the, this ideology that no, the Nebraska way is going to fix the problem, and I don't think that's going to happen. Um, I think they, they need to modernize. I think they need to start look, reevaluating how they recruit. Also, I do think... And maybe this wouldn't make anybody feel better except people outside of Nebraska. Just admit that when you left the Big 12 and you left Texas and you gave everyone the finger, you also cut off a major recruiting area. And you haven't really recovered since because replacing Dallas with Chicago in terms of recruits is pretty bad when you go one-to-one. They need to change a lot of their of their philosophy and their operating practice. The fan base is awesome. The culture's there. I don't. I'm not one of these people that says, "Well, it's cold there; they can't win." Because Ann Arbor sucks. I mean, it's cold, and you and it's not. It's not hospitable. The idea Friends, that have you Michigan, been to Columbus. 
Yeah, I, well, yeah. Columbus, for whatever reason, always escapes that criticism, but it's pretty cold there too. Uh, I just don't buy that. I don't. I mean, I think you're going to see PJ Fleck at Minnesota win to a degree. I don't think he's going to land any national titles anytime soon. But the idea that if it's oh, it's an inhospitable place, you can't get people to play there. I just, I, I vehemently disagree with that. They have to strip everything down and start over in terms of football, and they just seem hesitant to do that because of some entrenched power, and they're hiding behind tradition, which is always a dangerous thing. So now, I, I will say, I mean, a, they, they were the first school to start an analytics department, I believe, and um, you know, I've talked to the guy a couple times, their director there. I mean, he's involved with a lot of programs. Uh, so I think they're trying to modernize in that way, and that's cool. And honestly, I mean, at the moment, they've got like six four-star commits that, you know, out of ten guys in their class. One of them's from California, one of them's from Texas, one of them's from Missouri, I, you know, one of them's from IMG, which is kind of its own state. And, you know, <laughs> I, I think they – I think they might be taking steps in that direction. If they fail right now, it's because they made a bad hire. Well, not a bad hire. It's the, they didn't. They make made the wrong hire. hire. Right. They didn't make a good enough hire. We've That's, talked about this guy a thousand times and how nice he is, and I'm tired of I'm tired of having to couch that around every statement. He was not the right hire for Nebraska. And that's why if the if he fails, it's because he wasn't a good enough hire. And otherwise. I think they're, they're slowly kind of shifting their structure to where it does work out, to where it maybe is set up to succeed to some degree. They just need to make a good hire. That's so many, so many, you know, I, I know with this podcast a lot, we get, you know, what does so-and-so need to do to really take that next step? We get a lot of questions like that. So much of it is make a kick-ass hire. And if you lose that guy because he went to a bigger school, make another one. And it's, it's, it, it's so simplistic, but it's the straightest possible answer it is the di- most direct path to being really good at football is make a good hire and then watch yourself become really good at football i think you need to blend equal parts wisconsin and michigan and start there figure out how they attract floridian talent figure out how they're dynamic and how they how they sort of move beyond the borders of their state in terms of branding and then i, I, I hell after that there you're in the west so if you get this thing right you, you've got a clear shot at a, at a conference title almost every year one thing that has, has surprised me in Nebraska's strategy over the past couple of years, and this speaks to, I think, their assistant coaches a little bit. Like, you know, Nebraska, and this is, they've had this for several years, has done a good job of recruiting talent in California, um, especially some skill talent. That's, that, you know, that they, they've done that since the 90s. They probably do that better more consistently than just about anybody else in the Big Ten. But what they haven't really done is tried to recruit Ohio. Like, you've you've talked about the Chicago area and everything, and I think people forget this a little bit because Chicago's a big city. It doesn't produce that much really high-level football talent. And a lot of those kids that they do are products of parochial systems that Notre Dame gets um, or, you know, that are are very competitive. Like, Cincinnati produces more kids who are D1 level and, like, that surrounding, like, those those suburbs than Chicago does. And it's it's a much smaller size. If yeah, we look true. at yeah the way that Ohio's set up right now, where Urban Meyer and Ohio State are recruiting nationally, they're going to probably get the top five kids in the state. But that leaves, I mean, I'm looking at this right now, there's probably another 10 who are either four-star caliber kids or just under it who could play almost anywhere else in the Big Ten. And right now, they're mostly going to Kentucky. And they're going, and Luke Fickle's coming in there, and they're getting a couple of those kids at Cincinnati. And Michigan State used to make a living on a lot of those kids, and now that program's kind of, you know, has an uncertain future, and they're not going there now. 
And that's really the lifeblood if you're a Big Ten program for where you're going to get really good kids. And Nebraska, um, even when they had Polini, a Youngstown guy, um, has never really been effective at, at being competitive there. I think if, if you're looking at a pathway for Nebraska to improve their talent acquisition, yes, you need to continue to, to, to mine California. And you're going to recruit Florida because everybody in this country recruits Florida. And you're going to be, you're going to be active in JUCOs and some of these Great Plains areas. But there's really good kids in Dayton and in Cincinnati and in Youngstown who aren't going to go to Ohio State or Michigan. And they could go to Nebraska, and they're not. I mean, the question right now is this. Are you going to go with Scott Frost or Craig Bowl? Uh, and I mean that not so much with those candidates, but also just what kind of philosophy are you going to take here? I'm not saying one is better than the other, but yeah. you're well, going to make a change. Conver- according to our conversation in Slack, in one of our Slack rooms this morning, uh, Craig Bowl is going to Kansas State. So, uh, Also not, not the weirdest thing I've heard. <laughs> I mean, would kind of make sense. Um, we we right. have another question um, here. Um, we do? Okay. Yeah, at Nate Rankin asks, uh, this is a very, very Big Ten-ish level geography question. Why is Toledo year in and year out the best MAC team on paper but can never bring home a MAC West title or beat NIU who is worse on paper? Um, Bill. So the the answer is basically that they – they always trip themselves up. I mean, he, he basically acted like they can't beat NIU. Well, they, they did last year. They finally got that monkey off. They beat, they beat uh, uh, NIU in Chicago last year, so that's fine. But the problem was they finally got over that hump. They lost a couple to NIU that they shouldn't have. Close games, you know, lose by five here, three here. Just a stupid little rivalry thing that happens and drives you crazy uh, that kept them from winning the division a couple of times. NIU was better a couple of times and that helped. And then last year they, they finally got over the NIU hump and Western Michigan zoomed on by them. So it's, it's stupid. It's timing. It's whatever, but they're consistently good. And in theory, if you do that, you'll be fine. The end. Um, yeah, I have absolutely nothing to add to that. It's the back. (laughs) Put a bunch of feral cats in a giant laundry bag and then throw them out a window. I don't mean that to kill the cats. I just mean that they're going to have a big old time. Well, do you have to um, throw them out the window, or can you just like... No, like, you know, the, for like, like I mean, just... Oh, oh man. I, I don't know how many pro-cat people I'm about to get angry. I did Seriously. not mean to kill the cats. Yeah. Sorry. You, you do not want to mess with cat Twitter. It's not yeah. quite as weird as horse Twitter, but it's not a Twitter <laughs> you want to mess with. I definitely don't want to... Uh, yeah, or Mac Twitter, for that matter. <laughs> All right, here's one I guess I should feel obligated to answer. Nate Rakin, uh, man, you just got this in under the wire. Bagman in the G5. I know they exist everywhere, but how do Bagman and the G5 differ from the P5? Do the same bidding wars happen? Uh, I'll ask, answer the last part first. Not exactly. Um, the bidding wars aren't the same. It's when the kids are on campus and you're winning football games that you start to get compensated. Is that short and sweet enough for everybody? Um, I'm trying to think if there's a better way to elaborate on that. Yes, the kids are getting some money. Obviously, just like everything else and why I alluded to you, uh, salary caps on everybody is that you know the, there's not as much cash flowing around in the Sun Belt and the Mac and that kind of in those kind of places. Are kids receiving inducements? Yes. Um, what you see more often than not are inducements from agents who aren't necessarily the most upstanding agents in the world, and they're <laughs> looking to grab kids that aren't. Uh, that are a little bit under the radar before the senior bowl and the combine. And so you'll see inducements from agents at those levels because usually the universities don't have the staff in place to deter that. So, okay. uh, all right. Any other questions? I think that's all we got. Are we going to 
Dive, since Matt's here and is official co-host of, of PAPN, are we going to dive through the latest previews now? We got, what, 15, 20 extra minutes here? Let's do it. Uh, Beal? Yeah. So, where are we on our... T- tell me where we are on our magical journey. Since the last time we spoke, uh, the Syracuse preview went up the next day, but we already talked a little bit about them. Uh, so the preview, the other preview since then, Duke, Wake Forest, Georgia Tech, and one of the most fascinating from a pure psychological standpoint programs in the country, NC State. Where do you want to start? Um, I mean, big heavy hitting right there. Let's go NC State. Tell me, okay. explain, explain to the casual uh, what... NC State is going to offer in terms of either quality viewing experience or drive-by car wreck rubbernecking? Well, you kind of get both with NC State because, um, you know, first of all, that that is a tortured fan base. That's one thing I've learned through the years with these previews. As I wrote in the piece, as I tweeted a little while ago, NC State has managed to combine being consistently good. They've had, I, I think I counted, 20 bowl games in the last 29 years, almost always in the postseason. Uh, they have one season of double-digit wins in that span. They like they they broke through with the with Rivers there and whatever that was, 02 or so. Otherwise, that's it. They haven't you know almost every other program trips into a random ten-win season, uh, or a couple of them really at, at that rate. NC State doesn't. They beat teams worse than them. They lose to teams better than them. They occasionally get upset by East Carolina. Uh, and that's their existence, and it never seems to change very much. And now that they're getting better under Dave Doran, the ACC is getting better, and they're in the wrong stupid division, uh, and they have to play Florida State, Clemson, and Louisville every year. And uh, they just they they are are swimming against the tide. They they continue to get better, uh, but their record basically stays the same. And so um, this this year in particular, I think is particularly. Uh, tortured in the fact that they are going to have their best team in quite a while. A ridiculously senior heavy defense, a really, really good front seven, very or front six, I guess. Very few in the country are going to be better than that. They've got Jalen Samuels, one of the weirdest, most unique players on offense. Uh, he's basically an H-back who was their leading receiver. Um, they've got all sorts of, of experience in the skill positions. They've got Ryan Finley for a second year now. Uh, they've got an experienced line. They've got basically everything they're ever going to have. And they're projected to go seven and five uh, because they still have to play Florida State in Tallahassee. They still have to play at Pitt at Notre Dame. They still play. Uh, they get Clemson at home. They get Louisville at home this time. Uh, it is uh, if they're ever going to break through, it's going to probably be this year. And if they don't, then they're going to be way young on defense next year. They're going to be starting over. So I think there's a lot of stress. It's now or never. And, I, and the now part of that's going to be very difficult. That's a small window you just described. Yes. If I may, real quick, the uh, one one thing that I I want to mention, like I I see this a lot about how NC State's in the wrong division, and they're they're kind of capped a little bit here about where where they can go given where they are, and I think there's a lot of truth to that. <clears throat> uh, Clemson and Florida State are dramatically better, and they have dramatically you know better infrastructure. They're probably going to be at the class of that division, but I, I couldn't help but notice over the last couple of years that um, <clears throat> NC State hasn't had that much success when they play the other side of the division either. Like, sure, you, you, might, you might have these two automatic losses, but, the, you know, they've lost to North Carolina, they've lost to Virginia Tech, they've lost to Georgia Tech over, over the past couple of years. I don't know if you flipped them on the other side these last few years when they've been still around that, that seven and six, you know, window. You know, 
do they get a? Would you think they're really more of in a game or game better? If you put them in the other division, would they have been able to beat the good uh, Tech or or, NC, or UNC programs over the last few years? I, I don't, I don't. Maybe I, I'm less sure. Well, last year was the year that uh, they, from a stat standpoint, they really broke through. Yeah, before that, they were only in the 40s, so maybe seven and six turns into eight and five. Um, but in in 2016, uh, yeah, I mean they they still figured out a way to trip uh, into losing at ECU early in the year. It's like a part of the state legislature that they play ECU and lose to ECU. Yeah, nobody um, should play ECU if you're a North Carolina school. And they managed to, even though they like from a stat standpoint, they they would have won this game most of the time. They figured out a way to lose to BC. Uh, right in the middle of that stretch of playing Clemson, Louisville, and Florida State. So they still they still stumbled a couple times last year, but. They lose six times. Uh, they have those two losses. Their other uh, four are to Clemson, Louisville, Florida State, and Miami, a.k.a. the four top 15 teams in the ACC. Top 15 for S&P. Um, and they, they played Miami at a time, like right after Miami was started coming out of their funk that they fell into after losing to Florida State. And if you flip them around, they did beat, they won at North Carolina last year. Um, depending on home road, they would have been, you know, from a projection standpoint, if they were at home, they would have been projected to beat Virginia Tech at least. And then everybody else in that division was 15, 20 spots behind them. So, oh, Pitt, Pitt, Pitt. They would have played Pitt too. So, you know, maybe that, maybe that all translates to about the same. But if you take away three of those four top 15 opponents, or at least two of those four, depending on interdivision play, then I, I absolutely think that's probably... Well, I mean, on paper, even with that schedule, it was a nine-win team last year. They lost two games that they really, from a stat standpoint, had no business losing with East Carolina and, and Boston College. So they were really a 9-4 and four team on paper anyway, and you flip that, maybe 10-3 and three is possible last year. Before that, completely different story. It just sounds incredibly stressful, Bill. Yes. Is there it, all right? Let me put it this way: that window you described, I can't think of a team off the top of my head that has that sort of situation in that window where the the same amount of like the small margin of yeah, something could happen good here is is just as equal as like no, you're you could easily just get shut down here and then have to wait another four years. Yeah, because they they start the season against South Carolina, and I mean, God, that's a swing game for both schools. That's a huge Whoa. swing game. For my numbers don't like South Carolina. Well, I mean, they project them 36, but they like NC State more. Uh, so it's, but it's basically still just a three-point game on paper. And so, yeah, you win that one. Then you play Marshall and Furman. You lose to Florida State. You beat Syracuse. And you're 4-1 and one when Louisville comes to town. Uh, and that was, you know, they got trashed by Louisville last year. That's a major revenge opportunity. It's on, a, like, a, I think a Thursday or Friday night, if I remember right. Um, so that's a huge thing. They're five and they're, they're four and one with a huge game. Uh, but if they lose that game, yeah, they probably beat Marshall and Furman anyway, but then they're two and two when Syracuse comes to town. Uh, they've already missed one opportunity. The fan base is already freaked out because they probably got thumped by Florida state as well. And that, that environment is completely different uh, for Syracuse, much less Louisville. Well, if, you're, if your fan yeah, base so is that freaked out that you got thumped by Florida State, your fan base is not educated. Well, no, it's, they, 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 they're freaked out because it's a very Louis high – because you've already lost twice and it's high anxiety and all that. Right. I don't know. Yeah, I don't – they play Notre Dame this year too, right? Yeah, they play at Notre Dame. Yeah, I, I don't know if, if yeah, that's this, a w. this is the season. <laughs> I'm just mean. Not, not too mean or anything, but you know. You know, um, all right. I don't know if I necessarily call them intriguing. I feel I feel like I would be very stressed if I watched NC State 
Bill, tell me about Tennessee's opening opponent. It's okay. a uh, it's a school that runs an innovative offense yes. with a dynamic young head coach. I mean, young by weird, you know, by Bill Snyder's standards, yes. Um, no, young at heart. That's true. Yeah, young, young at heart. Okay. Uh, yeah. Very Georgia much Tech. not young at heart, by the way. Very grumpy. Georgia Tech. Uh, if they have a quarterback, then they actually have a ton of experience at the A back and B back and receiver positions for the first time in about three years. Uh, they have more. They have their entire secondary back. They have more experience on defense than they've had in a few years. If they have a quarterback, then they really should uh, once again be like a top 30, 35 level team. Um, they're, you know, Justin Thomas is finally gone. The guy who was supposed to replace him, Matthew Jordan, he hurt his foot in spring ball, and he's, they're rushing to get him back. They're, re- they're reasonably optimistic, but, I mean, it's a foot injury. You never really know how that's going to go. Uh, so if he's not ready, then you go with, like, the, this junior who's barely played, Taquan Marshall, or you go with a freshman. And so it, it's really kind of interesting. I mean, they have all the, they have the option pieces. They've got an experienced line. They've got all the, the slot backs who will average, you know, seven yards per carry over, like, three carries per game. You know, they have all the kind of the Georgia Tech-ish piece, pieces. They should have a better defense, not a great defense, but maybe a top 40 or 45 defense. And so, yeah, if they have a quarterback who's going to run the show, they should be a pretty good team, and they should have a chance to beat Tennessee. They should have a chance to beat, well, definitely Pitt in North Carolina at home. Um, they would have a chance to have another nice year that doesn't get Paul Johnson fired. So the same thing again, huh? Correct. Correct. You know, you're really – I don't feel like you're selling me on anything sexy here. Let's just – all right, move along. Give me something else. What you got for uh, me? Well, I mean, we're pretty much out of, of sexy at this point. We got Duke and Wake Forest. How oh, dare you besmirch Wake Forest like that? I mean, they, there's a cookout there, isn't it? Like, that's kind of sexy. Sure. Yeah. Um, all, right, Wake, I'll, I'll, all right, let's do this. Wake Forest is a team I'm considering for the chicken bet with Jason Kirk or shut down fullback. Uh, full cast, I always say fullback. Um, is that a wise move? Four well, for, where are you four for four. Forest. What? Where are you putting the bar? Four games. Four. Oh yeah, they'll win four. Okay. Now yeah, I got that was too easy. That well, was way too easy. For well, no, especially because I just realized Jason listens to every episode because he's the college football editor. So now I can't sucker him into that bet. So we're just gonna have to do this offline. What about Rutgers? I think I think he had suggested that one. That might. Yeah, be. I know, but I don't think. I mean, I think both of us agree that Rutgers may not even field a team this year. So, um, all right. How about this? It's not sexy. It's wholesome and it's good for the soul. Bill, how much longer does David Cutcliffe have doing this David Cutcliffe recla- reclamation thing at Duke before this window of a new and a better ACC just wipes him out? Well, this I think it wiped him out last year. I think that's, you know, they on paper, I mean, the, the premise of my preview uh, last week was just basically that on paper, they're basically, they were basically the same team last year that they have been for a little while, except they got... Well, A, they lost some close games, and B, suddenly the rest of the conference is better. And uh, there are fewer easy games to win. There are more hard games to win. Yeah. And um, I'm going to pull up. There's a tidbit in this preview that I want to make sure I got right here. Let's see here. Uh, This is always good radio. So Mm -hmm. um, during Duke's four-year bowl run, from whatever that was, twelve to fifteen, I guess. Okay. Went twenty-five and three against teams that finished below five hundred, and eight and seven teams again, eight and seventeen against teams that finished five hundred or better. So 
if you're playing three or four or five, or you know if you're playing four five six of those five uh, below 500 teams that works out great you know you 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 pick off one or two pretty decent teams you beat the bad teams and you go to a bowl last year um they only played three uh, teams below 500 and uh you know then they are in a situation where they beat Notre Dame who was a very good four and eight team i don't know if you remember that duke went uh, that notre dame went four and eight last year but they did matt it's true people people do forget this but multiple sources do confirm okay. notre dame finished and, four and eight last year and they beat north carolina as well um and they went four and eight so i mean that's <laughs> that kind of tells the story right there they 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 beat two good teams they uh beat army and nc central as well but they tripped up against virginia uh, they were they really weren't very good early. They had the quarterback injury. They changed quarterbacks pretty much immediately. Went to a freshman, and so they weren't they didn't really have their act together until October. But once they got their act together, they didn't have any other wins on the schedule. And so that's the the situation they're facing. They should be pretty. They, they're going to have a pretty young team. They're going to be pretty. They should be you know top forty fifty good in twenty eighteen. But this year might be kind of the same situation where they're they're trying to figure out what they've got moving forward, and everybody else is better. For the record, he's totally fine. I, I didn't mean like the window. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. They're yeah. going to fire. Yeah. I thought you meant more like when's he going to retire, that, that kind of thing. He's not going to yes, get pushed. Yes, 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 definitely that. Yeah. All right, Bill. Yeah. You know, for a conference that we've touted a lot, I don't really feel like we've done the, the ACC sexy justice. I, I, I think there's uh, – NC State, I mean, you don't have to be nervous watching them. You can just watch them being nervous, and that makes it pretty pretty. I guess, yeah. It just depends on how you project as a viewer. All right. Uh, where are we headed next in the preview? We have North Carolina tomorrow. Um, which That's an interesting they, one. They are rebuilding in a major way this year. Um, which, and, and, I mean, long term, they're positioned just fine. But next year, this year is going to be kind of weird for them, I think. And mm-hmm. then we got Pitt, who also rebuilds, at least on offense. And then we were finishing the year. We're, we're to the bigger names now. We're, we got Virginia Tech on Friday. We've got Miami on Monday, Louisville on Tuesday, Florida State on Wednesday. So, um, yeah, this is we're in the middle class now of the, of the ACC. Sexy or not, uh, the middle class is why the ACC is such a good conference at the moment. Because, I mean, NC State was like number, what, 25 or something in S&P. Well, you, uh, just, defi- no, you just define North Carolina and Pittsburgh as going through uh, not total or system cleaning renovations, but you know some adjustments. Put, right, you know, well, no, I, put I mean, the ACC probably probably a little bit. The ACC probably isn't going to be the big, the best conference this year, but last year they were because of these middle class teams that I'm talking about right now. Okay, interesting. All right, a little counter narrative. Talked about the cul-de-sac for I don't know nine months, and now we're now we're seeing some unmowed lawns, some gazebos under construction in the cul-de-sac. Typical McMansions. Typical. Um, Bill, we'll leave yeah. it there. We'll get to the uh, we'll get to the shiny, sexy part of the ACC next week. Uh, Matt, take this time. Tell everyone where you can find the book and how they can contact you and how they can follow you on the social medias. Absolutely, you can follow me at Matt S B N. The book is available right now on Amazon. Uh, what is today's date? The eighteenth. By next week, on I believe on the twenty sixth, there will be a Kindle version available. If you're into that, it will be nice. available. Uh, and a variety of independent bookstores over the next next week or two. If you like the book, uh, tell your local bookstore that they should pick up a copy. Um, and uh, over the next month or so, we'll be doing a couple of signed copy giveaways and some other discounts, so be sure to follow along. Uh, I think it's pretty good. I hope you like it. 
All right, Matt, where can they find you on the socials? Uh, Matt SBN on Twitter.com. And by the way, I mean, first of all, congrats on the book. Second of all, congrats for being forward thinking enough to not put an underscore in there. Um, mm-hmm. The underscore in my Twitter handle has been just to, you know, any radio ever. It gets Change weird. it. Change it. Yeah, well, no, it's. I mean, I, I have this other problem, right? That there's like a gajillion other Matt Browns. There's the yeah, other. I mean, like I get confused. You have an imposter Matt Brown in your own industry. I, I know him. Dude, 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 dude. Okay, let, let's let, let's take a quick step here and just appreciate this. There is an imposter oh, Matt Brown who is roughly my age, mm-hmm. a Big Ten institution who yes. writes for Sports on Earth. He's very yes. good. You should follow him. Yeah, he's a very nice person. Does, yeah, does some other similar work that I do. There is a Matt Brown at the Deseret News, the Mormon newspaper. Oh, wow. Really? Yeah. That is confusing. No, it gets worse. There is another Ohio Matt Brown who is an MMA fighter and dominates, you know, the, the SEO and everything. And Le- less confusing in terms of in person, but keep going. Yeah, this, this is true. And I'm not even the most famous, like, I'm like the fourth most famous Mormon Matt Brown because there was a wrestler at Penn State who won a national title and then wrote a book. And also served a mission. Oh, so man. when you look up Matt Brown on like Amazon, I, I'm like the fifth person. So wow. I should have, I should have changed my name to like you know I should have taken my mom's maiden name. What about Matthew? No, there's like a, there's a bunch of other Matthew Browns. Like one of these. I mean, if I hadn't already written the book, I would have changed my name to Mateo at this point. Um, All right, it's a bad idea. Don't. That's you know, tough. Yeah, gonna, gonna have tough. to gonna have to give the rest of my kids weird names. I think. All right, Matt's book is available now. Um, Thank you for joining us, Matt. Bill and I, we will be back next week for the good part of the ACC, um, as well as some other stuff we can't talk about yet. That's right. We've been, into, we've, been more, we've been dropping more hints, but we're not talking about it yet. It's going to mm-hmm. be good. All right. Um, uh, you can find Bill on Twitter uh, at SBN underscore Bill C. You can find me at 38Godfrey. Please subscribe rate and throw us salutations and affirmations on whatever podcast service you choose to listen to us on bill you want to do this again next week absolutely